Heck yeah. So before we hop into the Sermon on the Mount, a couple weeks ago I mentioned to you guys about a building that we kind of are looking at to move Rimrock downtown into. Uh, the Y Church building, it's over on 12th Street, I believe, right by the weight room. Kind of want to give you an update. We found out as we're compiling all the different data, the numbers of what it'll take to bring the building up to, um, to be operatable in terms of roof and plumbing, things like that. We also found out that in order to be ADA, Americans with Disabilities Association, applicable, we're looking at an elevator, sprinkler system. So we're looking at around $200,000 in order to bring it up to snuff. So we're going to be presenting that to the Y, the board, all of those things. So it just kind of makes it a little bit more interesting than what we thought it might be. So that's just the remodeling. So it's $200,000 to bring it up to the remodel plus the cost of the building. So we'll kind of, I want to really keep you guys up to date on what's going on because I believe that the church is made up of all of us, not just the leadership board. And so this is something that will directly affect every single one of you, so I want you all to be a part of it. What makes it even more interesting, most likely as of September, in September, we will no longer have a lease with this building. That's when our lease is up, which I love that. For some reason, that brought a whole lot of excitement back into my life, because if we don't find that building... Right, the Y building, we're able to move into it, just a nice smooth transition. It means that we're going to have to be a mobile church that finds a place to rent on Saturday nights. But if we do that, it means that we're going to really have to focus in on why this church exists. It's not just a place where we can come and cozy up and hang out with our friends for an hour every week. Right, we're going to have to really figure out why we're here. And for me, that is such a powerful and guiding question that we should always be asking ourselves. And if we get pushed out into the unknown, I feel like it forces us to do it that much more. So I say all this with the hopes that you guys will begin or continue to pray about where we're supposed to go. I've seen this community grow and strengthen in the past year, really over the last five years, but specifically in the last year, and I believe we're here for a reason. And so please engage with me and the rest of the leadership as we pray through that. All right, speaking of prayer, I need to center my mind on, on the Sermon on the Mount on why we're here, so please do it with me. God, we come here to seek you, to find out more about who you are, to worship you. We are interested in you, and we want to know more about you, and we want to give more of who we are to you. So we give you the next half an hour. Spirit, work within our minds and our emotions in the way that you can, the way that you are positioned to do. Give us something to walk away with that we can ponder and that we can apply. Amen. Amen. All right, so we've been moving through the Sermon on the Mount with the series we called The Blessed Life for the last two and a half months or so. Um, we're about a chapter, half a chapter in. Um, we got another two and a half months or so to go. But we're now beginning to move through Jesus' stance on specific issues. Anger, lust, this week, divorce. A lot of these statements that Jesus makes are quite striking. The passages that we'll be looking at this summer have the ability to deeply challenge a person's choices and their foundational view on life and others. 
As we go through this list, it's so easy for us to simply flip to the specific passage and try to understand these verses on their own. But in order to understand anything in life correctly, it should be viewed through its context. Let me give you an example. I love little girls. Now, if I just moved on and kept talking about other things, (laughs) but if I told you that I have a daughter who's three and a half, and when she was born, and as she's been growing up, she has fully changed my view on little girls. The tenderness and the sweetness and the love that she brings to my life. For example, while we were sitting here worshiping, she was standing on a chair next to me, and she kept hugging my hand and kissing it. She pulls me down and said, you are the best daddy I've ever had. (laughs) Right? She has shown me the power and the beauty of little girls. So therefore, I love little girls. Context is crucial. In order to understand each of Jesus' teachings in his Sermon on the Mount, we must remember that he is talking to his disciples, men and women who have decided to pull away from the crowds in order to listen to Jesus hear him out, and then apply his teachings to their lives. These are people who believe in the power of Jesus and are willing to let go of their own logic and emotions and what the people around them think. So that way they can live the way that Jesus instructs them to live. These are men and women who have become dependent upon him. Does this describe you? The second form of context that we have to have to understand what Jesus is talking about is that the followers of Jesus will be filled by God himself. Due to Jesus' sacrificial death, those who have chosen to depend on Jesus have been spiritually purified. In this perfect state, the spirit of God comes and lives within the deepest parts of who we are. It's what the Bible calls our heart, our mind, our emotions, our willpower. From this position, he has the ability to direct and to empower us to live the way that Jesus is teaching that we should live. Through him, we have the ability to genuinely love other people like we love ourselves. We have the ability to overcome the powers of lust. And like you'll see tonight, we have the ability to be married well. For his followers, the people that have pulled away and have given their lives to following Jesus, these commandments are not unattainable. For those who choose to depend on the power of God that is within them, they are achievable ways of living, and they directly stem out of God's design for his creation. When they live this way, they will be salt and light to those around them showing others the beauty and the power of God and his plan for creation. So it's out of this context, this idea that Jesus' followers want to listen to him and they're depending upon him and they have the power to do it that we can better understand the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at the passage we're studying tonight. This has not been an easy one for me. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of unchastity or sexual immorality, that's another translation, causes her to commit adultery. 
and whoever marries a divorced woman, woman commits adultery. All right, we need a little bit more context. Back in Jesus' day, it seems that religious leaders saw divorce as being acceptable due to what Moses had told them 1,500 years prior. If we look at Matthew 19, this is the other time in Matthew that Jesus talks about divorce, we get a better idea of this context. Some Pharisees came to him, and to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female? A whole other topic there. And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? He said to them, It was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But at the beginning, it was not so. Now from this, it seems that Jesus is speaking to people who have a similar view on marriage and divorce that our culture does. For both the first century Jew and the 21st century American, divorce was not uncommon. For both them and us, the seriousness of marriage and the covenant that a man and a woman make with one another on their wedding day was not and is not always taken that seriously. Rather, like every other generation in human history, we tend to operate out of selfish desires. When a person doesn't make us feel the way that we want, or doesn't live up to our expectations, we very quickly and easily entertain the idea of doing what will bring us the most happiness. With our current cultural perspective on the lack of universal truth, and that is no real reason to live up to other people's standards, like a set of standards, divorce is a really easy option. It's kind of ingrained into the deeper parts of who we are. But Jesus pushes directly back against this mindset and this approach to marriage. Like I mentioned before, in order to truly understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying, we must look at context, specifically at God's plan for his creation. And I feel like that, this, that, that is what Jesus is exactly doing. He brought them to God's original design for marriage. So Matthew 19, 4 and 5, just kind of pinpoint it for you. Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. A lot of this he's quoting directly out of Genesis. Let's look at the original passage, Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Right? This is the very beginning. God just finished making everything that we know in this world. Then the Lord God said, it, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for it was taken. For out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So I know you guys have heard this before, and it's so easy to fall into that Christianese sort of, yeah, that's just what happened. But this, if we believe what the Bible says, this is what truly happened. This is how it all began, the idea of marriage. At the end of God's creation of everything, God sees the importance of man being given a partner or a helper. In the Hebrew, partner or helper means assist and serves one another with what is needed. What's really interesting is this is the same word that was used to describe who God was to the Israelites. Eve is not something thrown in at the end after everything was already complete. She is a necessity for Adam. To make Adam and Eve's dependency on one another even more obvious, God states that they have become one flesh. It also translates into person or being. Jesus said this exact same thing to his audience. Now, I have no idea what that exactly means. Even Paul says that this is a great mystery. But I can say for sure that when a man and a woman decide to join their lives together, a connection on a deeper level takes place. Whether that be their heart, right, what the Bible calls their heart, their mind, their, their emotions, just that deeper part that drive us, or it be their spirits. You've got to remember, according to the Bible, we're not just physical, but we're also spiritual. Or maybe it could be both. But either way, a man and a woman are intimately bonded together when they make the commitment of marriage to one another. As they live out this commitment, they become even more bonded together, living with somebody, sharing finances, owning a home, making life decisions together, having children. These all create far deeper connections with people. Essentially, when people get married, they decide to build a life together. You've heard that over and over. To both create a world together that fits their individual and collective desires. You know, I figured this is an appropriate time to have an analogy, and there's so many analogies for marriage. I happen to be going to the Boundary Waters in two days, and I'm going to be doing a lot of canoeing, so we're going to have a canoeing analogy. Anybody gone canoeing by yourself? It's possible, right? Have you gone canoeing with another person? Which one is far more effective, far more enjoyable, allows you to go where you want to go at a much faster rate? It's when you do it in partnership. When you paddle, paddle in unison. You can still do it alone, but if you paddle in unison, it makes things so much better. I feel like this is one of the major benefits of marriage. When you partner with another, you receive far more encouragement, support and incentive to live life well than you do when you live alone. But for a person to receive the full power of these benefits and for them to be long-lasting, both people in this partnership must be committed. When a person is genuinely committed to anything, sports, job, hobby, addictions, right, that is when they are willing to do what needs to be done in order to make it the best possible outcome. This is why marriage, entering into a covenant with one another, is the best way to pursue a serious relationship. Unfortunately, this is not where our culture beliefs seem to be heading. 
I did a little research and some stats. In the past 10 years, the number of people in their mid-20s and mid-30s who live with somebody without getting married is up 3%. For people 18 to 25, more people cohabitate than are married. What was even more striking for me, the number of people between 18 and 25 that get married is down over 30% from 1975. This major shift in the view on marriage and its importance. Now, there's a lot of different factors that come into that, but I feel like so often we operate out of the mindset of instant gratification and are therefore unwilling to commit long-term to somebody else. By approaching a deep and intimate relationship through this temporary lens of momentary satisfaction, people are only able to experience a fraction of the benefits that marriage can bring. All right, so I'm going to kind of move into three different forms of application. If you're single, if you're married, if you've been divorced. Single, married, divorced. Start with single. So for those of you that are not married, please hear my logic. Other people are a crucial ingredient to living life well. The deeper that you allow a person into your life, the more they can support and encourage you. If you are at a place with a person where you want them to be a major part of your life, where you want to do things together to build a life together, then please understand the importance of both of you committing to this. If your serious relationship starts and continues with uncertainty of commitment, as time goes and life happens, there's a good chance that one's commitment will become more, one's lack of commitment will become more and more evident. By merging your lives together, on an unstable foundation, the chances are much higher for you to experience pain and brokenness due to the relationship crumbling. If the person that you are, are ready to spend your life with is not ready to commit to the same, then for me, this is an obvious red flag. Serious relationships have far too great of an impact on our lives to not be taken seriously. If you're married... That means you've entered into a God-created covenant with your spouse. Through both of your desires to be committed to one another, you have become one, right? One flesh, one being. In some way, at a deeper level, you have been bonded together. Now, this is not a small or an insignificant thing. This is a life changer. From this level of connection, you both have the ability to have such powerful effects upon your spouse. You can in encourage and support them like no one else can. You can bring them joy and levity. You can bring them hope and courage. From this position in their life, you can bring more goodness into their lives than anyone else can. But you can also bring them such pain. Someone's husband and wife have direct access to their spouse's tender spots. Through your words and your actions, you can bring more heartache into their world than anyone else. Based on the power of your influence, this is why being committed is so crucial. From the positive side, the longer that you spend time with somebody, the better you get to know them. The better that you know them, the easier and more effective your encouragement and support will become. 
However, when the things are not roses and gumdrops, things are hard, commitment forces us to work things out. Instead of being able to bail when things get hard, you now have to instead figure out what is wrong and do what you have to do to make things right. Let me give you a personal example. So in the first year or two of my marriage, probably the second year of my marriage with Roz, we just, things weren't going that great. And I remember the idea or the, the word divorce came up in a conversation. Somewhere along those lines, we decided this is not an acceptable word to have in our relationship. And so we just decided together, no matter how hard things get, we will not think or say the word divorce. And something beautiful happened from that point. It has never entered my mind, nor has it entered into any of our conversations. Another beautiful thing that's really helped us both out is Rosalind's inability to stay unhappy, her inability to cause strife. So when there's anything that has kind of upset her or she notices that she has upset me, we have to deal with it. I can see it written all over her face that, man, all right, we're going to have a conversation in the next five seconds or in the next 30 minutes, but it's beautiful. We don't just go our own separate ways, but due to our state of commitment, we come together, we work things out, and things get better. You know, I was looking through different analogies for marriage, and I came across this quote. Relationships are like a forged blade. At first, the fire burns red hot, and everyone around can see and feel the heat. People are envious of that heat, but the truth is a blade must be cooled and tempered to reach its full strength. The tough times in a relationship are the waters that strengthen the blade. Our blades need to be polished from time to time, and at a glance, it's nowhere near as impressive as your red hot blade, but it's so strong, it could probably cut through stone. That happens if you are committed to one another. Now, I know that being committed to not divorce does not mean that you are guaranteed to have a good marriage. It's unfortunate. I know too many people that are kind of like the living dead when it comes to marriages. They've been married for decades, but you can see they are so unhappy with one another. In order to experience the life-changing power of a good marriage, we must commit to selflessly loving our spouse. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 5. He's talking specifically about the husbands in this, but I feel like it relates entirely. And if you want more, there, if you want more uh, support for that argument, come and talk to me. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, see? And I'm applying it to Christ in the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife, Love his husband as himself. And a wife should respect her husband. Husband should respect her wife. This is a direct connection to the second greatest commandment. You should love others in the same way that you love yourself. 
That means if you are married, this is one of the main reasons that you were created, to love your spouse in the same way you love yourself, to nourish and care for them, to be willing to lay down your life for their sake. Now, I know this is a tall order. At times, really most of the time, being selfish is one of the hardest things to do. How can a person be expected to do this day after day, year after year? Now remember the context of the Sermon on the Mount? Who is Jesus speaking to? His disciples. People who have decided to trust in him over their own logic and emotion, which we know how dangerous those two things can be. People who saw Jesus' power and decided to commit to him and his ways of teaching in, the th- in three years from when he gave this sermon, these people would have the spirit of God living in the deepest parts of who they are, empowering them to love their spouse beyond what was reasonable, allowing them to live the way that they were designed to live. If you want to love your spouse in the way that God designed you to love them, then you must depend on God. Otherwise, you simply depend on your own logic and your own emotion, which will inevitably lead to selfish choices, which always leads to loss. I found the best and the easiest and the quickest way to trust God is through prayer. In those moments of tension, whether you're together or alone, simply start talking to God. Tell him how you feel and then ask him to empower you to love your spouse as much as you love yourself. Ask him for the strength to stay committed, to love her or him in the midst of whatever problem you're facing. And if you're together, pray this together. There's such power in collective prayer. But I believe that preemptive prayer is even more powerful. Prior to the blowouts, which every marriage will have and will continue to have, ask God to empower you to love your spouse well, to give you a deep and sincere, selfless love towards your partner. Personally, when I found that I do this, I have so much more of a loving perspective on my marriage, which then allows me to be kinder and more gentle and more thoughtful and more selfless, which then prevents the blowouts before they even begin to bubble up. Being selfless is such a powerful way to bring about good for yourself. Because when both people in a marriage live the way that God designed us to live, you will not only love that other person well, you will personally reap the benefits of a good marriage. All right, the last application point, divorce. Whether you've been divorced, know people who've been divorced, this is worth spending time talking about. There's three things that I want you to walk away thinking about tonight. First one, even though things in your marriage did not play out the way that God intended, a broken marriage is not a capital offense. It is not the type of sin that God elevates above every other one. In my opinion, divorcing a person is not a sole reason for a person to be asked to leave a church. It is a sin, just like every other sin that separates us from a perfect God. Spiritually speaking, divorce is on the same plane as insulting a brother, lying, kidnapping, murder. Every form of rebellion against God's plan puts us in the same place, spiritually cut off from our Creator. 
But if you have been divorced and you believe in the atoning blood of Jesus, then by grace you have been saved. Nothing you have done or ever will do has the ability to hinder your direct connection to the maker of everything. Second thing, in both passages in Matthew, Jesus talks about divorce. When he talks about divorce, he mentions that sexual immorality or unchastity is a viable reason for divorcing somebody. Now, we have zero time to truly explore this, but I want you to know that in certain circumstances, God states that divorce is the proper choice. It's not a part of God's original design, but due to the brokenness of this world, there are times when separating yourself from someone's unfaithfulness is what should be done. Third point, divorce is messy, but God is transformative. Regardless of if your actions contributed to the breakup or if it was completely up to your spouse, ex-spouse, divorce brings carnage into people's lives. But the God of the Bible has an endless desire to interact with our brokenness and limitless power to bring about change. Romans 8.28 is what I go to so often when I'm confronted with the brokenness of this world, whether I cause it or somebody else. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. I'm going to read that again. We know that all things, fill in the blank, we know that divorce works together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. God can make your life and the lives of those affected by your divorce better through the divorce. I know that is illogical, but we have to remember who God is. He is the creator of everything that has an intense love for his creation and a driving desire to transform our brokenness into good. He can turn all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Just a thought to end our time. Based on the context of all of life, in my opinion, you were created. Because of that, the only way for you to experience the best possible life is by following the instructions of the one who made you. Not only has God given us guidance on how to operate, he desires to empower us to live it out. If you are single, married, or divorced, the only way that you will live a truly good life one with purpose, contentment, and healthy relationships is if you depend on your creator. Please pray with me. Like I said, there's such power in collective prayer. God, we believe in you. That's why we're here. We believe you're real. We believe that you knit us together from, the, from nothing. And so we come to you. We desire which only you can bring, guidance and power to live well. God, please allow us to love you more and depend more, to depend more on you than we depend on our own logic and our own emotion. Spirit, give us one thing right now. Just burn it into our brains that we walk away thinking about 
praying about and implementing into our life. God, thanks for being real. Thanks for being so dang interactive. Amen.